0: The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 100. The sermon text is 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Psalm 100 and 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Would you hear now the reading of God's most holy word? Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Let us go now to 1 Timothy 4 and look at verses 1 through 5. There the Apostle Paul writes to his co-worker Timothy saying, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it today. Some time ago, I remember hearing that the second great doctrine of the Protestant Reformation was the doctrine of Christian liberty. The most important doctrine of the Reformation, the one that was discussed and emphasized the most, was, of course, the doctrine of justification. The Reformers were right to insist that the Scriptures teach that men and women are justified, that is to say, declared not guilty by God, not by their obedience or good deeds, but by the grace of God alone, through faith in Christ alone. Justification by faith alone is regarded as the great and central doctrine of the Protestant Reformation, and rightly so. But I have learned that the doctrine of Christian liberty is the second most important doctrine. And when I heard this long ago, I thought, how strange. How strange. The doctrine of Christian liberty, the the second most important doctrine of the Protestant Reformation. I have heard all about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but I have heard so very little about the doctrine of Christian liberty. It seems as as if this doctrine has been forgotten or lost. So what is the doctrine of Christian liberty? What is it? You will notice that our confession of faith devotes an entire chapter to this doctrine. Chapter 21 of our confession is entitled, Of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. I will not read it at this time in its entirety. Instead, I'll summarize this doctrine for you in three brief points. First of all, the doctrine of Christian liberty is the biblical teaching that those who have faith in Christ have been set free. Liberty means freedom. And Christians are free in Christ. We have been set free from all sorts of things. We are free from the guilt of sin. We have been freed from the condemning wrath of God. We are free from the rigor and curse of the law. In Christ we have been delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. We have been freed from many things, through faith in Christ Jesus. This was a brief statement from London Baptist Confession, chapter 21. It is a beautiful statement. Truly in Christ, through faith in Him, the Christian has been set free from many things that once held us captive. Two, the Christian has been set free, not to live in sin or to to live for self, but to serve God willingly and from the heart. That is why we have been set free. So that we might serve God. The non-believer may hear what I've just said and think, well that sounds more like bondage than liberty. That doesn't sound like liberty. You've been set free to, to serve Christ, to not live for self or for sin, but to, to live for the glory of God. The non-believer may say that sounds like more bondage. But the Christian knows that this is true freedom. We are most free when we are able to live as God has designed us to live, and that is in obedience to Him and for His glory. In Christ we have been set free from sin to serve the Lord. In Christ we have free access to God, and we are able to now yield obedience to Him, not out of slavish fear, but with a childlike love and willing mind. That is London Baptist Confession twenty-one one. Three. The Christian is also free from bondage to the teaching and traditions of man. And that is the thing that I wish to emphasize this morning. The doctrine of Christian liberty teaches us that the Christian is also free from bondage to the teachings and traditions of man. In other words, it is the Word of God alone which informs the Christian of what it means to live in obedience to God and not the opinions of man. The one who is in Christ has been set free from their natural bondage to sin. They have been set free to serve God in Christ. And it is the Word of God which reveals what God requires of them. How are we to live right before God? What are we to believe? How are we to worship? The answer is that we must go to the Scriptures to find out, friends. We must go to God's Word. God's Word is our guide. God's law is our standard. And when men, and I'm thinking here of teachers within the church especially, when men go beyond the Scriptures to require of God's people what God has not required, Or when they forbid what God has not forbidden, then they unjustly bind the conscience of the believer and violate the freedom that is theirs in Christ Jesus. This is the doctrine of Christian liberty. It's a very important doctrine, though you may not have heard of it before, or perhaps you haven't thought much about it. It is a very important and precious doctrine. Brothers and sisters, we have been set free by Christ so that we might willingly obey and serve Him. And how do we know what God desires from us? He has given us His Word. And we are bound to keep it, not more and not less. If you know the history of the Protestant Reformation, then you will understand why the doctrine of Christian liberty was so very important to the Reformed. The Roman Church in those days, and still to this present day, did heap heavy burdens upon the people. They commanded Many things not found in the pages of Holy Scripture. Men were forbidden from marrying if they wished to go into the ministry. Foods were forbidden during certain times of the year. The people were manipulated into buying indulgences on the basis of false doctrines, to name just a few things. It may be hard for you to imagine, but the spiritual burden was very heavy. The spiritual burden is very heavy upon some to this present day. A reformation swept through the land because some men grew convinced that the scriptures alone are our authority for truth and not the traditions of man. What are we to believe? How are we to live? How are we to worship? To find the answers, we must go to the scriptures. They are our authority for truth on these matters. Now it must be admitted that the church does have a very important role to play in all of this. After all, we have just learned in 1 Timothy that the church, with her officers and members, is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the teaching ministry of the church is not to be disregarded, tradition is not to be ignored altogether, the great creeds and confessions of the church are rightly cherished by the people of God, for example, but none of these things are the source of truth. God's word is the source of truth. He has given us His word and we are bound to keep it. The church is to submit to God's Word. The church is to preserve and promote the teaching of Holy Scripture. And when the church falls short of this, she is to be reformed by the Scripture. She is to be reformed over and over again according to the Word of God. So you see then, it is the reformed conviction that the Scriptures are alone or our authority for truth, which undergirds both our doctrine of justification and our doctrine of Christian liberty, along with every other doctrine. How are men and women made right with God, we may ask. The Reformers are right to say, according to the Scriptures, we are justified not by works, but by the grace of God alone, through faith in Christ alone. And what are Christians bound to believe and do in their personal lives and in worship? We reply that according to the Scriptures, Christians have been set free from bondage to sin, to live in obedience to what God has commanded in His Word. To go beyond the Scriptures and to command what God has not commanded is to illegitimately bind the conscience of the believer in Christ. We are free to obey God and we must reject the mere traditions of men, especially when they contradict or go beyond the Scriptures. So much more could be said about the doctrine of Christian liberty. I've only briefly introduced you to this doctrine this morning so that you might recognize that it is present here in 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. The term is not used. The phrase Christian liberty is not found here, but this doctrine does undergird what Paul says to Timothy in this passage. In this passage, Paul is again warning against false teachers. And in particular, he is warning against those forms of false teaching which forbid what God has not forbidden. This is a perennial problem. To this present day, false teachers will forbid what God has designed to be received with thanksgiving, And the reason this is a perennial problem is that it is a form of legalism which does appeal to the pride of man through religion. Do you see how this sort of teaching does appeal to the pride of man? The legalist will say, if you are truly spiritual, then you will abstain from these things also. And the word also there is very important. By it it I mean also, or in addition to what we find in the pages of Holy Scripture. Also, or in addition to what God has forbidden in His Word, the legalist will add to the Scriptures, commanding what God has not commanded and forbidding what God has not forbidden. And as I have said, this does often appeal to the pride of sinful men and women. The legalist imagines that they have earned something from God by living an extra strict life. They will think that they are better than the rest when they keep the stricter rules, rules which they have imposed upon themselves and do also seek to impose upon others. I hope you would agree with me that this is very damaging, this is empty, this is vain. And the Apostle had to combat this form of false teaching in his day as we do in ours. As we turn now to Ephesians 4.1, let us first consider Paul's warning against false teachers in general. At first we find a very general statement, a warning against false teachers, and a warning against apostasy that is going after those who teach false doctrines, and abandoning the Christian faith. It is quite natural for the Apostle to warn against false teachers at this point in his letter. Remember that he has just taught us that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And after that he recited a hymn or saying of the early church which summarizes the truth of the gospel. So truth has been the theme The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, and the truth has just been summarized for us. So now he warns against the threat of false teaching to the integrity of the church, saying in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. It's a very strong statement, isn't it? If you look at those words carefully, you'll realize, wow, this is is a very firm statement that Paul is making here. I think you would agree that the Apostle saw false teachers as a very big threat to the church. And his concern is understandable. If the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, then false doctrine is a major threat because it does damage to the very core of the church's purpose. God's church is designed to undergird and hold aloft the truth of God's Word and of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the truth is distorted and the gospel compromised within the church, then the church is corrupt to the core. The church is then impotent. Paul begins his general warning against false teaching by reminding Timothy that the Spirit expressly says... What does that phrase mean? The Spirit expressly says... There is some debate over what Paul means by this. Clearly, he is going to tell us about some truth which the Spirit of God has revealed. The Spirit expressly says, the question is, when and to whom did the Spirit reveal this truth? Did the Spirit reveal it recently to Paul? Paul being an apostle of Christ and, like the prophets, being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Or is Paul referring to something the Holy Spirit has revealed previously and through others? While the former former is possible, I do believe that the latter of these two options is the correct view. It seems to me that Paul is reminding Timothy of what the Spirit has previously revealed to and through others concerning the presence of false teaching and the reality of apostasy in the last days. In particular, we are to think of the teaching of Christ Himself, which was undoubtedly reiterated by others within the early church. When Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says, he is reminding us of what the Spirit has already revealed to the church through Christ and through the apostles. For example, we are to remember Jesus' words as found in Matthew 24. He taught His disciples saying this, listen carefully and then the end will come. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ Himself. And 1 Timothy 4, 1-2 does indeed seem to summarize the teaching of Christ concerning the presence of false teachers and the reality of apostasy in the last days. So Paul is not delivering a new Spirit-inspired revelation, though he could... Instead, he is reminding Timothy and the church of Ephesus of the message that the Spirit has already revealed through Christ. And this same message was also the teaching of Christ's apostles. I should remind you of what Paul said to the elders of the church of Ephesus when he met with them on one of his missionary journeys. He was passing through and so he called them to himself and he said this, among other things. He said this to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock, elders of the church of Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood, and know, or He says, I know, rather, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things." To draw away the disciples after them. And so you see this was a common theme. It was present in the teaching of Christ. It was present in the teaching of Paul and the other apostles. The church was to be on guard. They were to be aware about the threat of false teaching. They were to know that apostasy was real. And so when Paul wrote, the Spirit expressly says, he was reminding Timothy of these teachings which were delivered originally from Jesus and reiterated amongst the apostles The message was clear in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. When will these false teachers threaten the church of God? When will they threaten the church? Paul echoes Christ saying in latter times, in latter times. If you were raised under dispensational teaching, which many of you were, You probably think of the future when you hear the phrase, in latter times. Don't raise your hand, but is that true for any of you? In latter times, you think of the future. When dispensationalists read about the latter times or the last days, they think this means the time of the very end, the last few years before Christ returns. But in fact, the latter times or the last days are here now. They are here now. They began when Christ rose from the dead, And they will continue until Christ returns to judge and to make all things new. So the last days, or the latter times, run all the way from Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to the time of His return. To to see that this is the case, one only needs to compare the passages that I have just read. 1 Timothy 4, Acts 20, Matthew 24. The warnings found there are not only for Christians alive in the last few years before Christ returns... No, these warnings were for Christ's disciples to whom He was speaking, to those who would believe through their word, and they are for you and for me. Or if you would like a more explicit statement, consider 1 John 2.18, which says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. John, the apostle, wrote those words a long, long time ago. He was one of the original disciples of Christ. He was ministering to the early church in the first century. And even then he said, children, it is the last hour. It was the last hour even then. Or consider Hebrews 1, 2, which says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. This is a reference to, to Christ and the fact that God has spoken to us through Him And the writer to the Hebrews refers to uh, that time, the time when Christ was on earth and the time that followed as the last days. In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Or consider Acts 2.17 where Peter explains the Pentecost event by quoting from Joel saying, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, etc., All of these texts explicitly say that the last days began with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we are living in the last days. As were Paul and Timothy and the saints in Ephesus to whom they ministered. When we say these are the last days, we do not mean there are only a few left. Only God knows how many are left. But rather, we are saying... This is the last period of time. This is the last epoch in the history of redemption. This is the last phase before Christ returns to make all things new. For there is nothing left to be accomplished except the gathering in of God's elect and the consummation of all things. As Christ himself said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. It is indeed true that God has accomplished our redemption in various stages and through a variety of covenants, but this is the last phase. Our redemption has been accomplished. We live under the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, ratified in Christ's blood. These are the last days, therefore. We await only His return and the new heavens and new earth. So the point is this, do not be naive, brothers and sisters, This age, these last days, will not be a golden age, for the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This period of time that we are now living in is going to be marked by false teaching and the threat of apostasy will remain real. Pay careful attention to Paul's words. These false teachers are false because they first of all depart from the faith and they lead others to do the same. They depart from the faith. The faith is not here a reference to personal trust in Christ, but to the true doctrines of the Christian religion. That is how this phrase is being used. What do these false teachers depart from and what do those who apostatize depart from? They depart from the faith, that is, from sound doctrine. They abandoned biblical Christianity. In our day and age, it is not uncommon to hear professing Christians talk about different versions of Christianity. Have you ever heard this talk before? Different versions of Christianity. In fact, I heard someone talk this way not long ago. Contrasting, and I quote, your version of Christianity and my version of Christianity. Have you ever heard this this kind of talk? Now, if all they mean by that is your style of worship or the nuances of your particular uh, tradition, then I would have no trouble with that phrase. Indeed, there is room within the Christian church for different expressions in matters of indifference. But the comment was in reference to doctrine and even core doctrines. Friends, you you must know this. There are not different versions of the faith with regard to doctrine. Granted, we may disagree on some fine points, but the Christian faith is not ours to determine. Instead, it it is ours to receive. While we may differ in dress, in style, and in the circumstances of our worship, all Christians have the faith in common, for there is only one. It is the body of doctrine contained within the Holy Scriptures, taught by Christ and His apostles and delivered to the church of God, who is a pillar and buttress of the truth. There is only one faith. There are not different versions of it. The teachers that Paul warned against were deemed false because they departed from the faith and led others to do the same. Having departed from the faith, they also devoted themselves to Listen carefully to this language. Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Strong language, isn't it? Very strong language. And when some hear this strong language, they may assume that Paul is referring to teaching that is exceptionally dark, twisted, and perverted. Right? It must be. To to earn the label, the teaching of demons, it, it must be exceptionally dark twisted and perverted teaching. Are you following with me? When you hear of teaching that is inspired by deceitful spirits and demons some will imagine that Paul has exceptionally strange and sadistic teachings in mind. But when we finally come to the particulars of the false doctrine that Paul was combating some may think, well that's not so bad. Or really Paul? This is the demonic teaching that you are concerned about. You have used this kind of language to combat this kind of teaching. And I am afraid that many in our modern age will think that Paul was overreacting. Paul was overreacting. But this is not surprising given the anti doctrinal spirit of the church today. Many Christians have believed the lie that doctrine doesn't really matter. Many live by creeds such as these. Doctrine divides, Jesus unites. You've heard that phrase. Or deeds before creeds. That has a ring to it, doesn't it? Really what matters is our good deeds and not so much our creeds or our confessions. Or no creed but Christ. We don't need creeds, what we need is Jesus. We need to just love Him and that's all we need to say. Many in our day live by creeds such as this, and they do have a ring to them, and they do seem to be true on the surface, but they are problematic in so many ways. In many churches, doctrine, that is to say biblical teaching, is de-emphasized while a premium is placed upon personal experience, upon emotion, upon good deeds. Stated differently, it doesn't matter what you believe so so long as you love Jesus, feel encouraged, and live a good life. That is what matters. And while I would not want to de-emphasize the importance of loving Jesus, being encouraged, or living a good life, I will ask you, is it possible to do any of these things truly apart from doctrine? I would say it is not. How can you love a Jesus that you do not know? It is possible to feel encouraged while believing lies. Do you realize that? And what is the good life? What is it? What does it mean to live the good life? Is it yours to define? No, we would want to say that it is God's Word that informs all of our pursuits. It is God who defines that which is good. We are to keep His law. And I also may ask this question. Does this doctrinal approach to the Christian religion, this anti-doctrinal approach to the Christian religion, really square with the teaching of Christ and His apostles? Does it square with it? The answer is certainly no. Remember, Christ himself warned against false teachers, and Paul warned against those who would depart from the faith, saying in another place, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Again, very strong language does not seem as if Paul was unconcerned with doctrine. He seemed to be very concerned that the faith be preserved. When we finally come to the specifics of this false teaching that Paul was combating, we may be tempted to say, really, Paul, is this so bad? Is this worthy of being called the doctrine of demons? But consider this, friends... Please consider this. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is twisted in such a way that it becomes no gospel at all, then that false teaching, no matter how innocent it may seem on the surface, is rightly called demonic. For those who put their trust in this false gospel are still in their sins and will spend eternity in hell and not heaven. So to twist the gospel so that it becomes no gospel, even if the teaching on the surface seems innocent enough, it is rightly called demonic Those who believe in this no gospel, this false gospel, have believed a lie. They remain in their sins. Put differently, it is not only those who have joined the occult, or something extreme like that, who have been deceived by the doctrines of demons, but even those who go by the name Christian, who have believed a counterfeit gospel. If Paul's language seems too strong to you, then I'm afraid that you have failed to comprehend what a precise thing the gospel of Jesus Christ is. The good news is that though we are unable to save ourselves god has graciously provided a way salvation is found through faith in christ alone but to teach that we earn our salvation in one way or another turns the gospel into no gospel and that is why paul speaks so strongly these false teachers were perverting the gospel they were teaching that faith in re- was required faith in christ was required along with abstinence from these things. They were forbidding what God had not forbidden. It was a perversion of the gospel. And so he uses this strong language. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Some false teachers teach what is false because they are ignorant of the truth. In other words, they truly believe they are teaching what is right and good, when in fact they are teaching what is false. This does not change the fact that they are false teachers. It only acknowledges that some false teachers may have motives that are more pure. But here, is Paul, here Paul is warning that some false teachers are, in fact, insincere. In other words, they pretend to be what they are not. They are liars and they know it. They deceive those who are untrained and gullible. They take advantage of those to benefit themselves. And how do these men who teach falsehood, and knowingly so, how do they sleep at night? How do they live with themselves, you know? To be leading so many in the false way? Living a life of deception and insincerity? How do they sleep at night? Their consciences are seared, the Apostle says. What does it mean to have a seared conscience? What does it mean to have a seared conscience? The conscience is that part of man's soul which distinguishes between good and evil. When a conscience is working as it should, it will love what is good and hate what is evil according to God's moral law. Even the conscience of a non-Christian will be pricked when he does what is evil. But those who make a habit of ignoring their conscience will, over time, sear their conscience so that they no longer feel remorse for doing what is evil. When a young man tells a lie to his parents, he may at first feel a sense of shame. But if he ignores his conscience and tells lies over and over again, his conscience will be seared. He will feel the remorse less and less and find it easier to lie with the passing of time. The same thing happens to the body when pain is ignored. Perhaps you've noticed how mothers who have cooked a lot can grab things off of hot pans without feeling anything at all. Perhaps it was the Thanksgiving Day celebration that reminded me of of this uh, great ability. How could that be? How can that mother pluck that thing off the hot pan and and not feel any pain? Well, the nerves on the tips of her fingers have been seared, I guess. And that is a good thing. But to have a seared conscience is a terrible thing. To have a seared conscience leads to great wickedness. And so how do these false teachers continue on in hypocrisy? How do they sleep at night when they teach what is false and take advantage of those who are vulnerable? The answer is that their consciences are sealed, seared rather. They may be compared to those who will peddle a fake vaccine during a pandemic. In fact, they are worse than these. They are peddling a false gospel. Those who believe them think they have found a cure, but there is no potency in their message. Men and women are left in their sins, and the consequences of this are eternal. And so Paul warns against false teaching in general and against the reality of apostasy in these last days. Let us now turn our attention from the general warning about false teaching to the particular. In particular, these false teachers in Ephesus did forbid what God has not forbidden. In verse 3, we learn that these false teachers forbid marriage and required abstinence from foods If you know your church history, this does sound a bit like the Roman Catholic Church in the days of the Reformation, and even to this present day. Obviously, Paul did not have the false doctrine of Rome in mind, for that doctrine developed much later. But we should remember that there is nothing new under the sun. False teachers have always been inclined to add to God's Word and to heap burdens upon God's people, so as to control them by taking advantage of their fear or appealing to their pride. They say this, Do you wish to go to heaven? Then do these things, or abstain from these things. Go on this pilgrimage. Give to this building project. Abstain from this food. Lead an aesthetic life. Live celibate, etc. And by your merit, you will earn for yourself life eternal. It is a load of garbage, brothers and sisters. It is a false gospel which only gives false hope. How do we know that it is a false gospel? Simply this, nowhere do the scriptures teach these things. These false teachers were forbidding marriage. Perhaps they taught that Christians must not marry so as to be free from earthly concerns. Instead, they were to remain single and devote all of their time and energy to the service of God. But God's Word teaches that God created marriage in the beginning and called it good. Marriage is good. To forbid it is to go beyond the Scriptures. You should remember that Paul did encourage the single life in his writings... He encouraged it for those who were gifted and called to it. He encouraged it so that men might be free from the cares of this world and devote themselves to the service of Christ. But there is a big difference between speaking positively of the benefits of the single life for some and forbidding marriage for all. It is one thing to encourage it, to say this might be a good thing for you. If God has called you to it and if He has gifted you to it, then perhaps you would choose this path. But these false teachers were forbidding marriage. The one upholds the doctrine of Christian liberty, the other violates it by forbidding what God has not forbidden. These false teachers also required abstinence from foods. And you may be thinking to yourself, but weren't the Hebrews forbidden from eating certain foods in Old Testament times? Weren't they forbidden? from eating certain foods? And the answer is yes. And that is the point. Under the Old Covenant, God imposed dietary restrictions upon the people of Israel for a time and for a purpose. They were therefore bound to keep God's law as God's people. But according to God's word under the New Covenant, those dietary restrictions do not apply. You will notice the central issue here. The people of God are bound to keep God's word. And they are free in regard to the traditions of men. The Christian may choose to eat with thankfulness only certain kinds of meat or only vegetables, but these restrictions must not be imposed upon others, for they go beyond the Scriptures. And I do wonder if you can imagine what it would be like to belong to a church that makes a practice of violating the doctrine of Christian liberty. You have to use your imagination here, at least I hope you do. If you don't, if you know what it is like, then we have a problem, don't we? But use your imagination This might seem like a trivial thing to you, but it is not. These are heavy spiritual burdens being imposed upon men and women. What would it be like to hear your church say, If you wish to be saved, or if you wish to be blessed by God, then do X, Y, and Z, or don't do X, Y, and Z, but for X, Y, and Z to be always changing and nowhere found in the pages of Holy Scripture. It would be... One set of hoops to jump through after another. And I wonder if you could see the danger in it. I wonder if you could imagine what that burden would feel like. It is well known that one of the things Martin Luther was troubled by when he posted his 95 theses was the selling of indulgences. The Roman Catholic faithful were being taught that one way they could free their loved ones from purgatory was to purchase indulgences, the proceeds of which were being used for the building projects of the Roman Church. Just think about that for a moment. And So here the the faithful of Rome were believing these false doctrines. They were being manipulated into handing over their money so that Rome might build its elaborate cathedrals. How awful this was. Search the pages of Holy Scripture and you will never find the Roman doctrine of purgatory. And search the Scriptures yet again and you will never find this teaching that those alive on earth may free their loved ones from that imaginary place by giving money to the church. What a terrible misuse of church authority. What an awful violation of Christian liberty. And yet the same sort of thing goes on even to this present day, even within the so-called Protestant tradition, as men with poor and even false doctrine, do manipulate the gullible with their teaching so as to enrich themselves or to build their churchly empires. And as I have said, there is nothing new under the sun. We must beware of this teaching even to this present day. Lastly, and very briefly, let us consider the tragedy of false teaching, of this kind of false teaching, from from another angle, Not only does this form a false teaching which forbids what God has not forbidden leave men and women with a false gospel as they think they must do or not do something extra in order to be right with God. It also robs them of joy in this life which does then rob God of the glory that is due His name. What a terrible way to live to think that in order to please God one must abstain from the good things of this life. What an awful way to live. Things like marriage, things like food, things like drink. So not only does the one who believes this lie live under the burden of thinking that he must earn God's love by abstaining from these things, they are also unnecessarily hindered from enjoying what God has made to be enjoyed. Brothers and sisters, it is right for us to enjoy the good things of this life and to give thanks for them. That is what Paul exhorts us to do here. This is well-pleasing to God. And the scriptures have a lot to say about contentment and thankfulness. God is glorified when we enjoy what He has provided and we give thanks to Him from the heart. Verse 3, these false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I'm sure you can hear the language of Genesis 1 in this passage. When Paul says, for everything created by God is good, he is reminding us of that repeated refrain in the creation narrative. Do you remember that God created this and He created that on this day and that at the end? He said, and he saw that it, is, that it was what? Good. Paul is not here denying that the good things that God has provided may be misused by us. Food is good. It is to be received with thanksgiving, but food may be misused. It can become a god to us. To overindulge or to run to food for ultimate comfort is called, in the Scriptures, gluttony. Wine is also good, but to drink to the point of drunkenness is called sin. Sex is good. But to engage in it outside the bonds of marriage is sin. So Paul is not denying that the good things that God has provided may be misused by us. Instead, Paul is teaching us that when we partake of the good things of this life and give glory to God, give thanks to God for them, God is well pleased. We are bound to keep God's law and not the traditions of men, brothers and sisters. That is the main point of this passage we are, to abstain. we are to abstain from what God has forbidden, but we are free to partake of what He has provided within proper bounds with thanksgiving. This is why Paul says elsewhere, So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You may choose to abstain from certain things, food, drink, marriage. You may abstain if you wish, or for the sake of not offending a brother or sister in Christ who has a weak conscience or a propensity towards some sin, but never are you to impose your preference upon others. This is especially important for those who minister the Word of God within Christ's church. Christian liberty must be maintained for the preservation of the gospel, for the good of the congregation, and for the glory of God. Let me conclude by looking forward in 1 Timothy just a little bit to see where Paul goes with all of this. I want for you to drop your eye down to verse 7 of chapter 4. And I want you to notice what the Apostle urges Timothy to devote himself to. He urges Timothy to devote himself to the proclamation of good doctrine leading to godliness. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather... Train yourself for godliness, he says. This is where Paul goes with it. He says, have nothing to do with these silly myths, these customs or traditions of men that are not grounded in Holy Scripture. They're to be disregarded. Rather, train yourself for godliness. What should be our aim as Christians? Not keeping a bunch of man-made rules and regulations, but rather true godliness, true doctrine, will produce true godliness In true Christians, false doctrine will produce only hypocrites, whitewashed tombs who have the appearance of holiness on the outside, but inwardly there is only death and decay. There is a form of religion that is only superficial, brothers and sisters. It is that form of religion that loves to keep man-made rules so as to appear holy but the true gospel of Jesus Christ cuts to the heart and transforms to the core as the Spirit works. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have been set free to live for God's glory. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would guard our hearts, that we would not be drawn to this form of false teaching which forbids, what you have not forbidden, and commands which you have not commanded, but may... Our aim be true godliness. May we seek to keep your commandments in Christ Jesus. May we keep them from the heart because you have renewed us. Father, we thank you for the fact that Christ Jesus has paid for all of our sins if we have faith in Him. This is freeing. We have been freed from so many things. But we thank you that the Spirit has made us new. We thank You that we have been freed to live not for ourselves or in sin but to live in obedience to You and for Your glory. Father, I pray for myself, for my family, for my brothers and sisters in Christ here that we would truly walk in that freedom. Father, help us to honor You in all things. Help us to honor You in our eating and in our drinking. Help us to give thanks to You in all of these things so that You might get the glory. Help us now in Christ's name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.